0: This is God's infallible, inspired, inerrant word, Matthew chapter two, verses 13 to 18. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, what happens after Christmas when all the presents are opened, all the turkeys or whatever you eat at your house have been eaten, all the Christmas movies watched, what then? Well, culturally, lots of things happen after Christmas. Holidays continue for lots of us, at least until New Year's Day. Winter fun is had, leftovers get eaten, Lego sets get built. And a week or two later, life picks up where it left off. School restarts. You know, hopefully parents return to work, the regular schedule gets resumed. But what happens in the Bible after Christmas? You ever thought about that question? Well, the first thing that happened, we didn't read it here today, but it was the visit of the wise men, the magi from the east. And contrary to most manger scenes, you may know this, but it kind of annoys me continually, is that the wise men, they weren't there, you know, the night that Jesus was born, the likely timeline is they saw the star of Jesus in the east, somewhere far in the east, Babylon or something, on the night of his birth, and then began the long journey to Israel, and they arrived likely weeks or months after his birth. And that same star reappears to guide them, if you read the story carefully, right here, or in Matthew 2, verse 11, sorry, not here, but the, the magi don't enter the stable to meet Jesus, they, they meet Jesus at a house, See, Jesus didn't live in the manger, you know, for his whole childhood, just for that first night or two. But the wise men arrive months later, they meet Jesus at the house, it only says Mary was there, Joseph may have been, you know, working or whatever. Uh, the wise men fall down, they worship Jesus, they give, the, they give the gifts, and then they take off. And that's where our text picks up the story. So what happens after Christmas in the, in the, here? There's a narrow escape, followed by a tragedy, And in this somewhat disturbing story, I do think we see something important about the nature of Jesus, what he means for Israel, what he means for us. In the aftermath of Christmas, what do we learn about this man who's been born Savior, this Christ the Lord? Who is he? Well, I have three things I think this text teaches us. First, he's the new Israel. Second, he's the true king. And third, he's the man of sorrows. Let's work through those together. First, the new Israel. Look at verse 13. When they, that's referring to the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. See, whenever a biblical writer uses the word behold, you should try to picture it with an exclamation point. They are telling you to look at something. Something surprising is happening. In more common language, we might read it, when the wise men had departed, whoa, you know, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. It's shocking. It's surprising. Now, angels are everywhere in the early days of Jesus. One appeared to Zechariah, maybe Jesus' uncle, a relative of some kind. One appears to Mary. Joseph already had one dream with an angel. This is number two. But the angel shows up again and has an important message. And what does he say? He says, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, because Herod's about to try and destroy him. Now, my children, uh, I've been reading with them. They've been reading on their own, too, a little bit. This the series of books called Max and Liz. And, and it's this, story, this series where these cats and dogs follow around Bible characters. And the author, Jenny Cote, she tells the biblical stories but adds a lot of details and conversations. It's sort of like the, the story doesn't change, but a lot of the details are, are kind of fictionalized, lots of little extras. And when she gets to this story, I really love the way she explains it. Because if you look carefully there, the first word the angel says to Joseph is rise. And it's in a dream. So this, this could be very literal, meaning like, get out of your bed or your are sleeping mat or whatever you're sleeping on. Like, get up right now and go. And if you look carefully at verse 14, it says, Joseph gets up and leaves at night and takes, takes Mary and Joseph by night to Egypt. And so what happens in the Max and Liz version... The angel wakes Joseph up from his sleep, and he's hurriedly gathering up Mary and Jesus. And the soldiers are kind of coming into Bethlehem right at the same time. And, and, and the soldiers are coming into town, and they're, they're kicking down doors and stuff like that. And Mary and Joseph are, 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 are packing. They're saddling up their donkey. And then, and then a Roman soldier begins to bang on their front door for them to open up. And they're, they're like sneaking out the back just as like the soldier kicks the door in. And, and, they, and they have this really narrow escape uh, from Bethlehem. Now, now, did it happen that way? I don't know. It makes for a good story. It it might have been. we, We aren't sure. But why Egypt? We do know they go there. Why do they go to Egypt? Well, I'll give you a practical reason, and I'll give you the theological reason. Egypt was about 145 kilometers from Bethlehem. You're like, that's not that far, an hour and a half in your car this afternoon or something. But if you're on foot or even if you have a donkey or something, that's a multi-day trip. Maybe even a week-long trip if you're a young family with a baby. Uh, but more importantly than, than the distance, the way the Roman Empire was divided up is that Egypt was a different jurisdiction. There's a different governor who is in charge there. So Herod, even though he's very powerful in his little little area, he can't reach them there. There's Egyptian towns and cities for them to hide in, a different governor. So that's the practical reason. It's safe. It's far away. But notice that Matthew doesn't really give us that reason. He gives us a theological reason. If you look in the middle of verse 15, he says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. All right. We got to do some background work to understand what Matthew's telling us. What you, can't, what you should know is from the earliest days of Israel, one of the ways the scriptures spoke of Israel's relationship to God, one of the metaphors they used was it was like a child to a father. For instance, when Moses is getting ready to go before Pharaoh, if you know that story, and God's telling Moses, all right, here's some miracles you can do. We can make your staff turn into a snake and stuff like that. And then, but God also gives Moses some words to say to Pharaoh and in Exodus 4.22, God says to Moses, Say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. That's what he says to tell this, you know, this pagan, this non, you know, non-Jewish leader. Israel is my firstborn son. Later on, when Israel starts getting kings, 2 Samuel 7, God, God tells the people he considers his relationship to the kings of Israel like a father to a son. Same kind of language. And later still, when Hosea the prophet comes along, and in Hosea 11 verse 1 says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's the prophecy, that's the text that Matthew's quoting here. But but you need to know, when Hosea wrote those words, everyone assumed it wasn't prophecy, it was history. Because what they would have said is, oh, I remember when God called his people out of slavery in Egypt. I remember when he called his firstborn son out of Egypt. Wasn't that great, but it was in the past. Nearly everyone who read this text up until the time of Jesus assumed this is, this is referring to Israel when they left Egypt the first time, you know, leaving slavery, Pharaoh, and all that kind of stuff. But Matthew comes along and says, no, 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 no. Hosea 11, 1. It isn't history, it's prophecy, It was was always going to be fulfilled by Jesus. So in some ways, it's, it's, it's the true meaning of the verse, out of Egypt I called my son, that was always intended to foreshadow or to predict Jesus going to Egypt and being called out again. Now what's the point? Well, think about it this way. What I said is that Jesus is going to be the true or the new Israel. And if he's going to be the new Israel, he has to relive the history of Israel. Every t- but every time they failed, he, ha- he will be faithful. Every time they grumbled, he's gonna be thankful and grateful. Every time they went wrong, he's gonna go right. So think of it this way How does Israel's history begin? Well, it begins in the book of Genesis, right? The creation of the world, miraculous intervention by God. How does Jesus' story begin? Miraculous intervention by God, a cr- creation of something new. Christmas, Christmas Day, it's sort of this new Genesis. God's starting over. But what happens at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob and all his sons and all their wives and all their families, they go to live in Egypt. Why? To escape certain death. They were starving. They were in danger of being wiped out. They go to Egypt. In Egypt, there's food and safety. Does that sound familiar? See, Jesus is retracing Israel's journey so that a number of years' time, when Herod dies, he too will be called out of Egypt and returned to the land of promise. See, Jesus is reliving their history, but doing it faithfully and justly. And Matthew, as a writer, he, he's kind of obsessed with this word, fulfill. He uses it, again, in this passage a little bit later, but he uses it 15 times in his book. He keeps pointing out, hey, remember this in the Old Testament, this prophecy, this prediction? Jesus fulfilled these things. Matthew's point is that Jesus is the new Israel. He's starting over. There's been a new Genesis. There will be a new Exodus. Now, maybe you're wondering at this point, as I did, Does it matter? (laughs) Is is, is it just a fun theological puzzle to unravel? I mean, in my humble opinion, it is a fun theological puzzle, but but I think it matters for this reason. This Jesus, this new Israel, he's creating a new people of God. And if he is doing that, that means old ethnic divisions are not going to matter anymore. Old ceremonial law, it's going to be fulfilled. See, Jesus, as a new Israel, sets the table for a dramatic expansion of the kingdom of God into every corner of the world, not just to Jews. See, if there's a new Israel, it's going to change the ethnicity, uh, the the scope of the people. But secondly, as a new Israel, King Jesus will be able to fully identify with with old Israel, his, his old people, and with us. He will know all of their sorrows, all of their pain. He'll know what it's like to be homeless, to be a refugee, to be on the run, to be displaced. He knows what it's like to have enemies and to be pursued. And he knows what it will be like to, to come home. Hebrews says it's, he's this high priest who has suffered in every way just like us. See, he did all the things Israel was called to do, yet was the perfect son that Israel never could be. Christmas brings different things to each of us, the Christmas season. And the day after Christmas (laughs) brings different things to each of us. Sometimes it's joy and gladness and feasting and delight. Sometimes it's pain and sorrow and sadness and grief and regret. And most often, it's a mix of the two, right? Jesus knows your highs and your lows. He's with you in all of them. He's able to save and work in the middle of any of them because he's been there. So that's Jesus, the true Israel. That's what we're learning about him. Secondly, Jesus, the true king, Now, Bethlehem was not a big place. It was just a village. If you're from the Ottawa area, it was smaller than Russell, smaller than Elmont, smaller than Embrun. It was a place similar in size, you know, based on my research, uh, to a place near Ottawa called Munster. Now, I don't know if you've been to Munster. It's a small village southwest of Ottawa near Saunders Farm. If you've never heard of it, exactly. That's like how big, you know, how big and important Bethlehem was. Bethlehem, not a place you'd expect a king I mean, it had sort of in its history this very famous king, King David, but it was a small village, and it probably had between five and 20 boys under the age of two. And if you do the math, the wise men get to Jerusalem a number of months after Jesus was born. They talk to Herod. They go to Bethlehem. By the time they they find Jesus, leave Bethlehem, and Herod realizes he's been tricked another couple of weeks, maybe a month passes or so. And so it's been a year, a year and a half or something since Jesus has been born, Yet Herod, in his vengeance, in his jealousy, in his rage, he orders the killing of all the boys under two. And if you look, not just in Bethlehem, but also in the region. He goes a little on the high side just to make sure he gets everyone. Now, now why does Herod do this? Well, it goes back to the interaction he had with the wise men, which I know weren't part of this, wasn't part of this passage, so let me just explain. When the wise men get to Jerusalem, they assume all the Jews knew that a king had been born. (laughs) Aren't you paying attention to the stars, you know, the way we are? So they show up and ask, kind of innocently, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now let's do a little thought exercise. Imagine someone came to my house, a random Tuesday or something, I'm working from home, doing pastor things, and they knock on my door and I go to answer it. And instead of Canadians, I see three or four men dressed in foreign garb, you know, Hawaiian shirts and shorts or something. And, 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 they, and they ask me, they say, oh, where is he who is born the pastor of Resurrection Church? Now, if you were me, what do you think you'd say? Well, you'd say something like, well, right here, like, or, no, like I'm the pastor of Resurrection Church. What do you mean, wh- where is he? Like, I'm, I'm standing right in front of you. See, when the wise men go to Jerusalem and they're looking for the new king that has been born, Herod's like, I- I'm right here. I'm like, I- I- am I not the king? See, Herod understands if a new king has been born, then there's a threat to his kingship, or he's already been displaced as the king, but sort of doesn't know it yet. See, in Matthew 2, verse 3, when Herod talks to the, to the magi, it says he was troubled by what they said. And troubled is just a understatement <laughs> you, you, you don't genocide for being troubled he was disturbed and, and perturbed and enraged herod was notoriously cruel his cruelty was known in rome he killed all kinds of people he perceived as threats to his rule. he's just a tyrant in the in the, in the as, as as far as that word can extend and so when the magi come with their question where is the true king herod orders a, a genocide a killing to protect his rule So two things I think we need to learn here. First is that the rich and powerful rarely respond well to the news of Jesus. The kingdom of God can be pretty tough on those who already have wealth or power or influence or prestige or beauty. Uh, Anything that gets you ahead in this life can be detrimental when it comes to the kingdom of God, especially, particularly if you have a lot of it. Because Jesus comes along and he says, the, the the first will be last and the last will be first. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And and when we read the scriptures, when current powers perceive the kingship of Jesus, they're like, oh, that's a threat to my rule. Because the good news of Jesus, this gospel, it's leveling. It insists. We're all in the same boat. We all need to change. None of us is right. The scriptures insist, if you're wealthy, you need to be very generous. If you're powerful, you should serve. If you are great, you should just become like the least. And that's tough news if you're in the lead because we like to protect our lead. But starting here with Herod, and it'll continue with Pontius Pilate, and a whole slew of other Roman governors, officials, or whatever, people will feel threatened. Powerful people will feel threatened by the kingdom of God. Because if Jesus is the king, then no one else is. But the second thing we learn, excuse me, is that there is a little Herod in all of us. And that's a little tougher to swallow Because lots of us don't have any issue with Jesus upending power structures and and, and getting the powerful people. Part of us wants a cheer, like, yeah, go get them. (laughs) But in the quiet of your heart, is there a little voice that says, no one gets to tell me what to do? Externally, you may come across as peaceful and cooperative, just a lovely Canadian person. But perhaps inside, you too are disturbed by the news there is another king who has a claim on your life. You know, another king, or the true king, could ask you to give your favorite Christmas present. Uh, A king could ask you to skip your holidays and put in extra time at work. A king could ask you, force you, to do just about anything. And I think in some ways, a Christian life can really be understood as this ongoing choice between uh, you being the king of your life and submitting to the true king. And we all have these regular times when we need to choose between going our own way and going the way that God has directed us. Right now I'm building a small ice rink in our backyard, and the weather this year has made it a little bit tricky. There have been mild days. Our backyard's pretty level, but not exactly level. I didn't pay for one of those, you know, professional liner things that holds all the water in. There's been leakage, you know, whatever. Um, It it would be nice if I could have just gone outside, you know, the first really cold day and run the hose for three hours and be done, a nice level rink. But that doesn't work with my setup, my, my current backyard. If I want to have a level rink, you know, that humans can actually use, I have to go out over and over, you know, add it. If you built a rink, you add little layers, you build it up slowly over time, you make adjustments, you tweak, you you fill holes, all that kind of stuff. The the Christian life, it's not this once and for all decision. I just filled up the rink and i dusted off my hands. I've chosen once and for all that Jesus is the king. No, no, no. It's much better understood as this ongoing process where you're continually course-correcting. You're tweaking, you're fixing, you're patching holes. The little Herod keeps popping up, and you got to kind of you know, squash him down. But if Jesus is the true king, it means you aren't, <laughs> and it means Herod isn't either. Okay, part three. Jesus, the man of sorrows. We've done Jesus, the true Israel, Jesus, the true king. Now Jesus, the man of sorrows. In 1875, Philip Bliss wrote a hymn called Man of Sorrows. If you've heard it, we sing a, a, sort of, a slightly more modern version of it here, but the, the original version, especially, is kind of haunting, mournful. It's based on Isaiah 52 and 53. And the first lines, if you know it, they go like this Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Now, it's curious. If you knew nothing of Jesus, to dub him a man of sorrows seems odd. It's like, isn't he the Messiah? Isn't he the chosen one? Won't he save people from their sins? Isn't he the true king? Why is he a man of sorrows? Well, that title most directly refers to his suffering and his death, as Isaiah 52 and 53 talk about. But here at the beginning of his life is also an indication that such suffering lies ahead. Let's just go over the details. Verse 16, Herod realizes the wise men have tricked and eluded him. He sends soldiers to Bethlehem and the surrounding region. He kills all the male children under the age of two. It's commonly called the slaughter of the innocents. In more modern terms, these young boys are what we would call collateral damage. Civilian bystanders caught up in a battle between kings. Herod's anger and his rage has spilled over onto a number of babies. And I don't don't mean to make light of it. Because so it would have been horrible. I mean, it's just, it's just hard to imagine a small village with this kind of carnage. But Matthew uses this word, fulfill again. And this time he refers to a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah is lamenting. He's weeping over the fall of Jerusalem. And particularly, he's sad in Jeremiah 31 about the young people and, and how the young people and the, and the young nobility of Israel have been carried off into exile and the picture in Jerusalem in Jeremiah 31 is all these mothers in the street weeping as their children are either, are either dead or have been taken away. And the reference to Ramah, uh, or Ramah is a town near Jerusalem. It's about five miles away. But the important thing about it is it was on the route that led to Babylon. So the way that their children were, were, you know, were dragged away from the city, that's, that, that town was on the route. Rachel, if you don't know who that refers to, it's one of Jacob's wives. It was his favorite wife the mother to Joseph and Benjamin, who later turned into three of the tribes of Israel. And even though the exile was hundreds of years, maybe even a thousand years, after Rachel had died, the grief is such that Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, it's reaching into the grave to, to touch Rachel herself, this mother of Israel. You know, we have a phrase that's similar. We say, uh, you know, so-and-so would be rolling over in their grave if they saw what was happening now. It's sort of what Jeremiah is saying. He's saying, if Rachel could see what was happening to her descendants, she would have wept, she would have refused to be comforted. And it's likely this saying that Rachel weeping for her children had become a kind of proverb by the time Jesus was born to describe the mistreatment of Jewish children. But like before, Matthew insists Jeremiah, he's not describing just a historical event, the fall of Jerusalem to to the Babylonian Empire, but he's prophesying of a future event. It's a prophecy that will be fulfilled like right now in the life of Jesus. The weeping at the fall of Jerusalem, the exile of God's people was was foreshadowing the weeping of the mothers of Bethlehem after Herod's men slaughtered their children. And what we find is that Jesus throughout his life will have suffering attached to it. And even though he escapes here, we understand there will be a future day when he will give himself over to those who seek his life. He won't run. He won't be rescued by a miraculous visit from an angel. In fact, he'll he'll intentionally refuse those things, and he'll give up his life. But for now, just take a moment to enter the world of Jesus. Normally, when a child is born, those of you who've had babies recently, you might appreciate this, that event is surrounded by joy. Friends visit, family flies in from all over the country and, and they coo over the baby and, and every little thing that they learn and do is, is exciting and meals are brought and pictures are taken. And in our denomination, often the child's baptized and welcomed into the church and there are the first is and then they roll over and that's, you know, all these things. Jesus' life is different. It's surrounded by sadness and mourning and evil and death and then exile when I mean, you talk about a blue Christmas, like that's exactly what's going on here. So, very simply, by 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 uh, means of application, I would just ask this: Anyone having a terrible Christmas? <laughs> is there anyone whose life is just surrounded by, by fresh sorrows? They might be big, but maybe they're just small. Maybe they're just canceled plans. Maybe you're watching this on video right now because you can't leave your house, or someone in your family is sick, or maybe your sorrow's bigger than that. Maybe this is the first Christmas without someone. Maybe Christmas just let you down. Maybe your friends haven't called. Maybe it's just been day after day of the same thing and there's no relief in sight. If Jesus is the man of sorrows, then he can be the savior to all who weep. He can save those who suffer at the hands of a cruel world like these, these children in Bethlehem. <clears throat> I think sometimes around Christmas, the beginning of a new year, we hope for a, that, that the new, a new year it, we think it's going to bring the change we long for. And with all the COVID stuff, we're like, maybe I'll just return to normal. We take normal. We don't need better right now. We just need normal. But, but I think in the flight to Egypt, the slaughter of the innocents, we understand that Jesus isn't giving us a fresh start. He's not sort of returning things to the status quo. What Jesus is doing, even here at the beginning, is he's creating a whole new world. He's creating a new people, a new Israel, He's reigning as a king of a new kingdom that will one day cover the whole earth. And he's ministering to those who weep and are sad in sort of the old world. And he shouts into a world broken by Roman oppression, I am making all things new. And he shouts into our world broken by COVID and everything else, I am making all things new. Even in the midst of tragedy, Jesus stakes his claim as the new Israel, the true king, the man of sorrows. So what happens after Christmas? In some ways, it's the same old, same old. Maybe there'll be leftovers at your house, maybe a bit more vacation, but this is a chance for all of us not to treat Jesus in the same old way. He's making all things new, and the the invitation is to be part of his new world, and it's being extended to all of us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and are grateful that even in sort of this blue Christmas of a passage, that you are still at work. We're still learning about what you will do in the future In the reality that we now live in. Help us to see you rightly, to worship you rightly. For those on the fence trying to make up their mind about you, help them to see you and to appreciate you for who you are and what you are doing. I pray we'd not look past you this year. We'd not just hope that the world can be different, but we'd enter with you into the new world that you are creating. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.